Turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, um, I just decided on that text while Jim was playing and wrote a bunch of notes down too. Uh, we're going to look at the first, uh, first, let's say the first five verses. I got a call from Jimmy last night and it was something like this, Randy, Randy, I can't talk. He feels fine, he just can't, he can't speak. And I, I think it was probably a year ago, I remember after a service, uh, somebody came down to the front to, con- you know, hey, I really enjoyed your sermon. And, and they were talking, I really enjoyed your sermon. I mean, it was very clear, it was very clear. But and then he said, but you're not the main preacher, are you? He said, the main preacher is loud, and he moves his hands a lot. And you don't do that, you're not the main one. And I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> So you might be thinking that now. Nonetheless, God is good, and we are here, and we're here for a reason, and we're going to look at this passage because it's a very, very, very rich passage uh, from the Apostle Peter. Uh, Let's look at the Word of God. Here's what it says. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according, or you might have in your translation, having been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the word of the Lord. And today we're going to be thinking about a word. We're going to be thinking about a word that's found in this text. It's the wonderful word. It's a vital word, as vital as air is to our lungs when we breathe. The word is hope. Because everyone's thoughts and lives are shaped by our hopes. Think about that word hope. You know, it gives us something to look forward to. It helps us to look ahead with with optimism. Uh, I read a story of a a fellow who, a man who attended a baseball game, and it was a Little League game, and then uh, he peered into the dugout and asked one of the the players sitting, sitting on the bench, uh, what's the score? And the player said, well, the score is 18 to nothing, and it's the first inning. So the fellow said, well, you must really be discouraged. He says, We're not, I'm not discouraged. We haven't even come to bat yet. That's hope. That's, that's optimism. That's something to look forward to, even if it's against all odds. You know, uh, uh, Black Friday is coming up, and what do people do? They line up around. There's already people who have been uh, at one Walmart in California somewhere have been camped out for three weeks with the hope that they're going to get some great deal, even though the odds of them actually getting it might not be that great. Or it's like a lottery ticket when when the, the amount gets really, really large. People line up hundreds of feet in order to buy the lottery ticket, even though there's a 16 times better chance of getting struck by lightning than there is of getting a lottery ticket. Nonetheless, hope can drive us. It's vital. It's crucial to life. 
A number of years ago, researchers were trying to uh, do a study on this idea of hope. And so they took uh, two sets of laboratory rats and they put them in two separate tubs of water. And what they did, it was really a cruel experiment, they left one set of rats in the tub just to be there on their own, and they found out that within an hour they had all drowned. But in the other tub, every now and then, they would pick the rats up out of the water and then set them back in the water. And what they found was that these rats swam for 24 hours. Why? Not because they were given a rest, but because they suddenly had hope. They hoped that somehow if they could stay afloat just a little bit longer, someone would reach down and rescue them. And aren't there a lot of people in the world that are like that? That they're going through situations in their lives where they don't really see the the light at the end of the tunnel and they just hope somehow if they could stay afloat just a little longer, things would change and their hope just might be realized. But if hope holds such power for simple rodents, how much greater should that effect be on our lives. I'm not saying anything new when I say that people need hope. So what is it? So what is hope? You can look it up on Wikipedia, you can look it up in Webster's, but a simple definition of hope is that hope is living now with the potential of a positive outcome. If your team has a free throw with the opportunity to win the game, uh, they're either going to make it or they're going to miss it, but your hope is there that the outcome will be good and that they'll make it. Or, or maybe you have a doctor's appointment and you have a procedure that you need to have done and you hope that when you go there, all it is is a procedure. And it'll be good or bad and you hope it'll turn out well and we pray that, that it would turn out well. All has to do with hope. But here's the thing. <clears throat> for many people, for us as well, there's an element of hope about life that's really nothing more than than, 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 than a wish. Because we say, I wish it would happen. I know it may happen. I know it may not happen. But what I really wish is that it would happen. And in that type of hope, there's always a degree of uncertainty. It may not happen, but I hope it will. He may not make the field goal to win the game. Uh, he, the procedure might not turn out like we hoped that it would turn out. It's like a wish, and there's uncertainty there. But for a believer, there is a different element to our hope. There is a different definition of it. For a believer, for a child of God, hope is not just a wish. It's not just the chance that a certain outcome will be positive, because for a believer, hope really carries with it a certainty. This text says, a living hope that Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, the Father has given us a living hope. That means a certain hope. That means a hope that's alive and will never, ever die. It's not like a wish that may, or may come true or may not, one that's dependent on people or circumstances or situations, but there's a certainty in our hope. Let me illustrate this. Let me illustrate two shades of this meaning of hope. You don't have to turn to it, but you're familiar with Daniel chapter 3. That's the story that we learned in children's Sunday school class of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When uh, Nebuchadnezzar, remember, he, he decided he would make an idol 
and that he would build this idol and that when the trumpets blared and the flutes played any time of the day, everybody there in the kingdom would stop and would bow down to this idol. But Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego wouldn't do that because they only bowed down to the living and true God. And so when King Nebuchadnezzar, as you know, heard about what they were doing, he called them in. And he said to his servants, you, you need to stoke up that furnace and I want you to make it hot because these three guys are not bowing down and I'm going to put them in that furnace. So you know that. And here's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told the king. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. They don't even have to argue. It's so obvious why they wouldn't bow down to his idols. They said, if this is the case, or if we have to go into this furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will also deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship this golden image that you have set up. Three little words. But if not. But if not. You know, we hope that we'll be delivered. We, we hope that we won't be burned to death in the furnace. That would be quite painful. We hope that the outcome is positive because we don't wish to be lit up in the fire. But if not, but if we're not delivered from the fire, even if things don't turn out like we we plan in this moment, our hope doesn't change. Because our hope is certain. It is secure. And it's not in you, O king. You see the difference? You see the difference in two types of hope? We say we wish that we wouldn't go through the pain of this trial. We hope that we don't have to go through whatever it is that we fear we might go through. We wish that it wouldn't happen to us. And when we do, when it does, we hope that there's a good outcome. But should it not, our hope still remains in the one, not who can deliver us, but who has already delivered us in our lives whether he delivers us in this particular situation or not. The furnace won't change that one bit. That's faith. Our hope is so tied to our faith. Faith is the assurance. Faith is the certainty of things hoped for. The conviction of things unseen. I think that's what the apostle Peter is addressing here. He wants to give us or give these, uh, us and give these elect, these churches who were scattered about, he wants to give them hope. He wants to remind them of the certainty of the hope that we have. And he says, those of you who are these elect exiles, strangers, or your translation might say aliens, you're misplaced, you face an uncertain future, or you're hurt, or you feel alone like an alien, Center your life on this certain hope because he is our hope and we hold on to him more tightly than anything else in our lives because he is holding on tightly to us. That's where Peter's heading in this, in this 
passage, and there's really two reasons that he names. There's probably a lot of reasons we could talk about of why our hope in Christ is so strong and so wonderful. Peter gives two. And the first reason is found in the uh, second part of the first verse into the second verse. Here's what he says. He says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God, or your translations might say chosen or elect, or having been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling of his blood. The first reason is that we have hope because God went to great lengths to secure us, to secure our hope. And because God went to great lengths, what we can be certain of is that we are very, very, very valuable in his sight. From the time I was 12 I, uh, until uh, I'd really gotten out of college, I, I worked in the family business. My family has a jewelry store, and the jewelry store has been in the family for a 164 years, and my great-great-whatever-grandfather came over for Germany, started this store, and I worked there and did all kind of things. I would, uh, I would sweep the floor, I would run errands, I would sell things, I would engrave, and I'd do all the different aspects of the business. And every day, at 5 o'clock, the store would close, and the doors were locked, and all the employees pulled out boxes and set them on the counter, and they placed the jewelry and the expensive items in those boxes. And once they were all placed in their boxes, they carried them to this huge vault and set them on a shelf in the vault. But the most expensive items, the fancy watches and the diamond uh, earrings and pendants and uh, engagement rings, they were put in a box. And then they were carried to the vault. And then they were set inside a safe inside the vault. And then when all that was done, the door to that safe would be closed and it would be locked. Then everybody would back out of the vault and the door to that vault would be closed and would be locked. Nothing was ever stolen from that safe. And nothing was ever stolen from that vault. It was secure. Those items were very, very valuable. And so they were very, very secure. The point is, we went to great lengths to secure the things that were the most valuable. You know, the church is like that expensive jewelry. We are very, very valuable to God our Father. And he has gone to great lengths to make sure that we have security in our hope. Security that's way more safe than being locked in a safe, locked in a vault. We are God's elect. That's what the passage says. We are the called out ones. That's what the word means. The word church and the word elect come from the same word. It means the called out ones or it means the chosen ones. In other words, we are the ones who have been chosen by God. He chose us. That's what the passage says. We have been chosen. If you know anything about grammar, if you know anything about, about language, anything about tenses, the phrase have been chosen that's in some translations, but it's direct in all translations and other parts to talk about who we are in Christ, have been chosen is perfect, passive. Have is a word that's perfect. It's like something that happened in the past. We're chosen. We have been chosen in the past. It has present effects, 
And the word been is passive. It means something has been done for us or to us. We have been chosen by God. Have you ever been chosen for a job? Or, of course, you have if you're working. Have you ever been chosen on a, on a team? When you are, you feel good, don't you? When you're chosen, you're glad. I remember in the eighth grade, we had basketball tryouts. And I, 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 you know, the day came, and you know how it is. You, they post those who made the team on the door. And I'm going up there. You know, I'm the shortest guy there. I'm going up there looking for my name. And there it was. I think I could see it because it was at the very bottom. I'm not sure how well I made the team. But the fact is, I was chosen. And I was on the team. And it was exciting. I think I scored four points all year. But I had a great seat. I had a courtside seat, and it was wonderful. I was on the team, and it was a great feeling to be chosen. But God doesn't choose us. See, what happens is when we are chosen to be on a team, or when we are chosen for a job, or when we are given awards, it's usually based on performance, isn't it? It's usually based on our resumes, and there's nothing wrong with that. He chose 15 players, and I very well might have been the 15th. But God doesn't choose us based on our performance. There's no human resource department in heaven that checks out our resume. And if you think for a minute that God chooses us based on our resume and that you deserve to be chosen, don't think that. Because if that was the case, neither you nor I would be picked. Because God, God's standards as a holy God are perfect. They are way too high. We don't measure up. But nonetheless, God did it. God chose us. We're on his team. And there's wonderful, wonderful confidence in that. And what did he do when he chose us? In his great mercy, the passage says, he has given us new birth, born again to a living hope. And that refers to our salvation born again to a living hope. If you're, if you're a mom, I wonder, I don't remember if I ever asked my mother this question, but it's a question that children often ask. It's, Mom, where did I come from? Have you ever had that question asked? Where did I come from? I don't know what you tell them. You probably don't tell them the, the stark broadsheet. That's kind of way outdated. Or you might say, well, you came from a a place in, in, in my tummy, or, or I don't know, I don't, I don't, I'm not a mom, so I don't know exactly what you, what you say and everything, but I know this, if your child asks you, Mommy, where did I come from? You don't say, you chose to be here. You don't tell your child, you're here because you chose to be here, because it doesn't, birth doesn't work that way. Our God The God of the universe is totally involved from eternity past in our lives. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. We have been chosen, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. The church is chosen based on the foreknowledge of God. What does that mean? What does that mean in this passage that we're looking at today to be chosen in the foreknowledge of God? Well, I don't know if you're a hiker, but if you are, maybe you've gone on a hike going through a forest. You know, maybe it's a forest that is being harvested by a company. And whenever that happens and you're out in a forest, sometimes what you find is you find spray paint on the tree or a little plastic uh, 
strip that's tied to the trees. Because what happens when those trees are harvested, somebody comes there and marks out those trees to be cut down. Beforehand, they mark them out so that the men with the axe or the saws, they know which are the trees according to the purpose and according to the plan are the ones that are going to be cut down. They're marked out. That's what it's saying here, that we have been marked out according to the foreknowledge of God, marked out even before we were born, before mankind existed, before the church even was in in existence. Now, that's great encouragement for us because what that means is those who profess faith in Jesus Christ have been marked by this indelible stamp of the grace of God. Therein lies our hope. And he went to great lengths. I don't mean to get overly theological on you, but if you look at this passage, one of the things that you can see is that the Trinity, the entire Trinity, was involved in our salvation. We've been chosen by God according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. In other words, God the Father marks us out. God the Spirit sets us apart so that we are made alive or quickened to respond to our salvation that was purchased by the Son, that living hope, through his resurrection from the dead. So in Jesus' viewpoint, in the viewpoint of the Son, what it's saying is that when he endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that is set before him, we comprise his joy. We are saved because he died, because he, he paid the debt of our sin. We weren't even born yet. All our sin was future sins, and he died for all of our sins that we hadn't even committed yet. He paid the price, and in effect, he redeemed us because he paid that debt. He purchased us. We are purchased by Jesus Christ, so we're different, and that gives us great hope. So the number one reason, I think, that's in this text why we can hold on to our hope is because God has gone to great lengths to save us. And we are so valuable to him. Remember a few weeks back in a sermon, Dr. Young said this very, very well. He said, we're not valuable to God because we are worthy of his love. We are valuable because he loves us. His love assigns value. He is totally and completely involved not only in securing our salvation, but in keeping our salvation. That's reason number one. We're very valuable in his sight. I think there's another reason. Reason number two that we can hold on to this hope. And that reason's found in the first five words of this letter. Look at it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter. God chose a fellow like Peter, he's one of us, to write this letter. You know Peter. You remember Peter. We know what he's like. He's known to be uh, impetuous. Uh, He's known to be uh, rash and he's hasty 
or he could be unthinking. He could act before he speaks, or he could speak at the wrong time. He was a man that the Bible is honest about, that, 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 that had flaws, didn't have it all together. Even, even after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and Peter was a leader in the church, and God used Peter, remember in Acts chapter uh, 15, I believe it is, where he, uh, he goes and he meets Cornelius, and God is using Peter to take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. And yet, later on, we read where Paul had to oppose him to his face. Why? Because even though he is the one taking the gospel, God told him to take this gospel to the Gentiles, yet he was backing down from it. And he was showing favoritism to the Jews. And even then, the apostle Paul had to oppose him and say, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. God chose someone like that to write this letter. He breathed this letter through this guy that is like us. And you know the familiar story. You're welcome to turn to it in Luke chapter 22. You know, it's the story after uh, the Lord's Supper and after uh, Jesus had, I mean, all the disciples while Jesus was praying had fallen asleep. Remember that story? And, and then the, and then the uh, officials came and they seized Jesus and they were leading him away. And the scriptures tell us that Peter was following from a distance. Following Jesus, kind of, kind of there but not there. And then they went to a courtyard and a fire was built and, he, and Peter sat down with the people there, and remember the servant girl turned to him, saw him seated there, the fire flickering off his face, and she looked at him closely, and she said, this man was with him. And what did Peter do? He denied it. Woman, I don't know him. And it happened again. A little later, someone saw him, and they said, you're also one of them. Man, I'm not. Then an hour later, Someone else came and said, you, you are with Jesus. You are that Galilean. Peter said, I don't know what you're talking about. Remember what happened? Just as he said that, the rooster crowed. And then verse 61 says this. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And then it says he went outside and wept bitterly. And Peter began to experience this broken failure, this, this bitter feelings of denial. He had blown it. He's guilt-ridden, this alienation, this idea of being scattered. And these churches he's writing to were scattered, really scattered throughout all of northern Turkey because they're persecuted. That's the church. We're strangers in this world. It might not feel like it all the time, but we're strangers for many reasons. Because of their persecution in this letter, maybe they had to flee from Jerusalem. They had to scatter because of their identification with Jesus Christ. You know, you could, you could uh, in the Roman Empire, you could say pretty much whatever you wanted to say about about God because they didn't really care who your God was. They had a lot of gods. But if you were ever to say that Jesus is Lord, well, then you could be killed for that because there's only one Lord in the Roman Empire, and that was Caesar. And so if they were in a situation where they had declared that Jesus is Lord, they would be persecuted for that, for their belief, for what they stood for, for what is true. 
Maybe we are like Peter in many ways. Maybe not as boldly. But maybe there are times when we say, no, I'm not. I don't know this man. You know, maybe we are scattered in our life. Scattered because things in our lives can hit us from time to time or to catch us off guard. Or maybe we are are scattered because we allow these idols, these silent idols, to creep in our lives and to take root, to move in, and to steal or to cause us to misplace our hope. But you know who had faith in Peter? Jesus did. Look at that phrase in verse 61. It says, The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And though the text doesn't say it, somehow if Peter was able right then to remember the things that Jesus had said, I suppose that when when Jesus was looking straight at Peter, Peter was looking back at him. And their eyes probably locked. Peter remembered what Jesus had said. And what he had said, not me, no way. What a failure. He's looking at Jesus in the eyes and he's thinking, I blew it. I let Jesus down. I let my friends down. I I let myself down. He was scared and he was scattered and he was a broken failure looking straight into the eyes of Jesus. And how how do you think Jesus felt? I mean, Jesus is looking at him, you know, is Jesus saying, man... I told you so, Peter. Here I am in a crucial situation in my life, and what did you do? You just left me hanging. I mean, you had the chance to to prove your word, to stand with me, to show a little integrity, to be a man, to show some character, and you bailed on me. You're a guilt-ridden failure. Now, if you were Peter, could you blame Jesus for thinking this way? Jesus, of course, didn't think this way. But here's what's interesting. If you look at the meaning of that word, looked, when it says that Jesus looked at Peter, it's not this cold, hard look of disdain and and disappointment and rejection. He's not just shaking his head judgmentally at Peter. What that word means, it's a look that carries with it an interest and a concern and a compassion You're saying, Peter, I love you. Jesus is about to go to the cross. And he's saying, I'm concerned about you because of what you're going through. And I know how broken you feel because you have rejected me. Jesus didn't let go of Peter. He wrote this letter. God used him mightily, didn't he? He blessed Peter. He believed in Peter. And Peter's hope in Christ returned even through this difficult trial. His assurance of hope and faith so energized him that he went from a person of denial to a person of destiny that God used greatly. He was a man who was changed by Jesus Christ. And he knew what it was like to be scattered and without hope except in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so Peter is writing to these people, guided by the Holy Spirit, to say, hope. You have a certain hope. You see it. That's grace. That's the favor of Jesus Christ. Looking at Peter with grace, even in the midst of Peter's denial. 
You see, Peter realized that even in his darkest hour, even in this hour of of self-protection and defeat and denial, he had locked his eyes upon his hope. Now, here's the point. Just as Jesus firmly set his eyes on Peter, Jesus always looks at each of us with the compassion and the concern and the grace and the mercy in the same way that he looked at Peter that night. Not in judgment, not in condemnation. The Bible tells us there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ, no matter how ashamed or how scattered we feel, but with grace and favor and concern and empathy and love. And he says, return to me. And this is the message of certain hope that Peter is writing about to us. What do we take away? Our hope is certain because it rests in a living Savior. The love of God for his children is seen in the great links that God went through for our salvation from way back before time. And another takeaway is this, that Peter was just like us. And the same hope that holds on to Peter also holds on to you and me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this hope. What a wonderful and certain hope it is. And then when we live our lives because we're people, and there's a lot of things that occur that we desire to hope, things that are passing, and it's wonderful to have those hopes and to have those dreams. But help us, Lord, to hold on the most tightly to the hope, the certainty that we have in our salvation through Jesus Christ, our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.